Father God, these are words of life and they will nourish us. So, Heavenly Father, may we receive them as that. May we hear your voice now through your word so that we might see Jesus more clearly and what it means to follow him today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, confession time. I find talking to other people about Jesus really hard. You might think that's a bit odd. You know, aren't you, aren't you a vicar? You know, you've, you've had theological training. You can answer people's questions relatively well. Well, the thing is, it is one thing to kind of stand up here and speak. I know that isn't everyone's cup of tea, but uh, it's one thing to take the opportunities that arise because of the particular role that you have, and people know that you're a vicar, and then they relate to you in a particular way and ask you questions. Don't have such a, an issue with that. But I'm talking about the opportunities and experiences that every Christian has with friends and family and neighbours and colleagues to speak about Jesus. Now, you may well find that hard if you're a Christian. So, you know, how do you take the opportunities that might present themselves? How do you know when to speak and when to be silent? How do you know when is the right time with a, with a friend to sort of take, to share your faith? And I find those questions difficult to deal with as well. Now, the reasons that we struggle with these things may vary for all of us, I think. There'll be different reasons. It may be for some of us. Deep down, we're, we're, we're just really not all that convinced that speaking about Jesus is something that we need to be spending our time on. You know, not convinced it's really all that urgent or important we don't want to upset people we don't want to intrude we don't want people to think that we're weird and you know lots of other things in life do really feel urgent and important and so it's just easier to stay quiet get on with the chaos of work and home and family and everything else in between maybe the issue is that we don't actually know many non-Christians all that well. And beyond all of that, maybe COVID has exhausted us, if we're honest, and that just sort of colours everything. Well, I came across this um, meme from uh, the Twitter feed, Very British Problems. Um, is it up there? There we go. Uh, very British problems, you might have seen this, it's quite a funny Twitter feed, and it amused me this week. So they just said this, Britain, just a load of stressed, tired people pretending to hope their emails find each other well. I don't know if that strikes a chord at all. It's a shame to think that Christians might do the same thing with one another, but maybe that is what we do sometimes. And the, the stress and the tiredness just makes us kind of go in on ourselves a bit. And none of that helps us to feel like speaking to others about Jesus is exactly what we ought to be doing right now. 
Now, if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and you're still looking into what that means, well, maybe that surprises you. Because uh, you might think, well, why wouldn't Christians want to talk about what they believe? Actually, it's often those who are not Christians who get this more than Christians do, bizarrely. Because people who aren't Christians who begin to grasp what it is that Christians believe often end up saying, well, if that is true, why aren't you telling everyone you meet? If you really believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he died and rose from the dead, that there is hope for the future, even through death, to a new world to come, there is hope in the face of sin and the ways that we hurt God and hurt one another. There's hope in the, place, in the face of suffering. If these things are true, why aren't you telling everybody you meet? And it's a fair question to ask, isn't it? Well, to help us think about all this, we've been looking at this book of Joel over the last couple of weeks, and what we've been seeing is that Joel wants to give his readers perspective on this particular calamity that they have been living through. They've endured this plague not a disease, but a plague of locusts. And it's destroyed everything and it's left them on their knees. But he says to them, his message is actually, do you know what? There's a worse day to come, the day of the Lord. Are you ready for that day? That is his message. And the way to be ready is to repent, to return to the Lord, we saw last time. And what you find when you do that is extraordinary, undeserved blessing. Now, we saw last time, verse 18 in chapter 2, the implication is that Joel's hearers did repent, and now he switches to telling them of what God promises in response in the, the rest of the verses we heard last time. And so at this point, at the beginning of the reading we heard just now with, with Abby, at this point we are in between the point where the people have repented and the point where the final day of the Lord actually arrives. We're living in between. Chapter 3 is the description of what happens when that day arrives. But now, having repented, having heard promises of restoration and blessing, we hear of the pouring out of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, these verses, 28 to 32, that we heard are unusual because they're quoted almost in full in Acts chapter 2, which we heard in the second reading. And hopefully you noticed that if you were paying attention. But we heard it again. We heard it twice, almost. And so from the outset, we can see the Apostle Peter, who is the one who's speaking at that point in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost after these extraordinary things have been going on in front of them and people speaking in languages that they don't naturally speak and people hearing and understanding the gospel being preached. And they're going, what is going on here? Are they drunk? What's going on? And Peter stands up and says, no, what is going on here is that those verses that you've read in the book of Joel are being fulfilled right here, right now. The Holy Spirit has been given to God's people. This is what Joel prophesied. And then he goes on to give the implications of that. So what we need to do today is, as New Testament people, living after Jesus has come, and remember Joel is obviously written before Jesus came, we need to understand what's going on here from the perspective of Joel as he looked forwards to what was to come, but we also need to understand this from the perspective of Peter as he looks back on what has just happened. Because what Joel looked forward to has now happened. And we have in these verses 
something which is a bit like the Peter Parker principle. Do you know what the Peter Parker principle is? You know Peter Parker, Spider-Man? The Peter Parker principle is that with great power comes great responsibility. Great power comes great responsibility. And with a bit of a tweak, that is what we have here. That with great privilege comes both great certainty and great responsibility. And it's all to do with speaking about Jesus and what to do with those barriers that we started to identify earlier. So here we go. First of all, we can see in these verses great privilege. The Spirit poured out on all. Verses 28 to 29. After then, says Joel, verse 28, after the blessings that come with repenting that we saw in verses 18 to 27, but before the actual day of the Lord comes, Peter calls it the last days in his speech in Acts when he's quoting this. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Up to this point in the history of God's people, the Holy Spirit has sometimes been given to specific individuals for specific tasks. He came on Joshua, on Gideon, on Samson, on King Saul. And you can read that if you read the accounts of those people's lives in the various historical books in the Old Testament. But now, says Joel, your sons and daughters, men and women, even servants on all of these groups, the Holy Spirit will be poured out. Now, what does he mean by that when he says all, all people, that it will be poured out? We use the word all in different ways. Sometimes all means all without exception. So, I have eaten all the chocolate biscuits in the cupboard. That means all chocolate biscuits, without exception, have been consumed by me, theoretically. But I might also say to you, I love all crisps. And I, I, I am saying that to you, I do. I love all crisps. It doesn't matter what flavour, you know, salt and vinegar, sweet chilli, even those weird flavours that Walker's crisps bring out every few years, like full English breakfast and Cajun squirrel. You know, if it's crisps, I will eat it. I love crisps, all crisps, any kind of crisps. But what, what am I saying there when I say I love all crisps? I'm saying all crisps without distinction between the different types of crisps. There is no flavour of crisps that I could conceivably reject. You know, try me. Find a bag of crisps and offer it to me. I will eat it. But I'm not saying I will eat all crisps without exception. Because you could present me with, you know, some stale crisps that have been left out too long. Or, or crisps that have been on the floor. And I, I'm not going to eat those crisps. Let's just be clear. So do you see, it's not all crisps without exception. Any crisps you put in front of me, whatever's happened to them, I will eat them. But it's, what I'm saying is when I say I love all crisps, I'm saying all different types of crisps, all without distinction between those different types of crisps. And here what you can see, what we can see, is that Joel does not mean all people without exception, every single human being who has ever lived. It's not that all people everywhere now have the Holy Spirit living in them but it's all people without distinction between different types of people. Because he immediately says, your sons and daughters. He's not, he, he's not saying all sons and daughters that have ever lived or all sons and daughters everywhere in the world. He's saying your sons and daughters, the sons and daughters of the people of God, your men, your women, 
There is no type of person excluded now. Before, even within the people of God, the Holy Spirit came only on specific individuals, on a king, on a judge. They received the Holy Spirit in that way, but others didn't, and only for a time. And that is what Paul realizes is going on now. In, in the first day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is now being given to all types of people in the people of God. And that means then that if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit. He's not reserved for special Christians, the select few, the ones who really get it, the ones who've had some kind of second blessing even. He is for everyone who trusts in Jesus. But so what then? Why emphasize this? Because of what he says all these people will do. Look at what he says. He says, they will prophesy. And one thing we need to understand here is that when he says they will dream dreams and see visions, that language that he uses is standard Old Testament language for describing prophets. Again, like with the Holy Spirit, only some people were prophets. But in, for example, uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, here it is on the screen. Uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, God says this, When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions, I speak to them in dreams. It's standard Old Testament language. For on the one hand, knowing God and knowing what he's saying, and then on the other hand, being able to say it, to prophesy. God reveals himself to the prophet. The prophet is then able to speak. To be a prophet, you need to know God, and then you can prophesy. That is what prophecy is, actually. We we, we tend to think, and I wonder if, if, if we think this, you tend to think prophecy means predicting things. You're telling the future. And sometimes that is what prophets did in the Old Testament. They would say, this is going to happen in the future. But actually, more fundamentally what a prophet is, is it's someone who says what God has revealed to them. And sometimes that is about the future. But more fundamentally, in other ways, they're simply saying what God is saying. And that includes sometimes about the present. And they speak into the lives of those they are talking. They're saying, God is saying, you need to do this now, not just what's going to happen in a few hundred years' time. God is saying, now, today, this is what you need to do. And prophecy includes all of that. It's speaking for God because you know God. And again, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, looks at what is happening, and he looks at people speaking, and he looks at them speaking in different languages, and he says, this is what Joel was talking about. No one in Acts chapter 2 has a vision or a dream, in fact. They do preach, they speak, but there is no dreaming at this point. And when there is, there are dreams and visions later on in Acts, there's no connection made with Joel. So all will prophesy. That is what this is saying. But what that means is that the, the, the big news here is not actually that all will prophesy, but that all will prophesy. If you can hear the difference between those two. All types of people will speak for God because they know God. All who have the Holy Spirit, which is every Christian who trusts in Jesus. So, do you see, step one in understanding how we can speak about Jesus today when it's difficult, 
is to be reassured and encouraged and possibly challenged to realise this is a task for every Christian. All people, sons and daughters, male and female, will prophesy because all will know God personally. We have the Holy Spirit. We're not on our own when we're speaking to our friends. We might think, we might feel that we are, but we're not. And maybe we need to wake up to that. Now, we might say, hang on a minute, surely the New Testament tells us, you know, there are some who are particularly set apart to be preachers and teachers and evangelists and to have a kind of upfront speaking kind of role. That's not a gift for all. It's not a job for all. And the answer is yes, that's absolutely right. There are particular gifts of evangelism, for example, of speaking about Jesus to others. People who are particularly gifted to preach to crowds and engage with them and help them to understand that they, you know, they, they need to hear about Jesus and put their trust in him. People who are particularly gifted with striking up conversation with people they've never met before. You know, people who just get on a train and suddenly they're in full flow and they're talking to someone that they've never met before. They, they've got the gift of evangelism. And we might be thinking, well, you know, that, that just isn't me. I don't do that kind of thing. Well, what the, the point is here, we're not talking about those special, particular gifts of extraordinary ability and unusual ability. We're talking about the everyday regular conversation that goes on between every Christian and other people during which because we have the Holy Spirit we are equipped to prophesy in this sense. Not in the big upfront sense but in the everyday sense of speaking about the God that we know because we have the Holy Spirit. It's the same with other Bible words. It's the same with teaching. You know, the New Testament identifies a particular gift of teaching, the kind of thing that I'm doing right now. But it also says that every Christian needs to teach one another in a much more informal kind of way. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, teach one another. Everyone's involved. So, First of all, get the privilege straight. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. It's been poured out on all kinds of people. Everyone who trusts in Jesus has the Holy Spirit living in them so that we know God. For generations before Jesus came, people did not know God like we know God now. People did not have access to God like we have access to God now. Each of us can, can now be like this picture here. Just why I put it up. It's a famous picture. John F. Kennedy... There's his son, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., playing under his father's desk. In the, in the, that's, the, you know, that's the Oval Office, that's the desk in the Oval Office. Great things happening on top of the desk, we assume. But JFK Jr. is right there enjoying access to the president, sitting at his feet. Access that no one else could have, just wandering into the Oval Office because he's his son. And everyone else has to make an appointment and gets turned away. Great privilege. Every Christian on an equal footing, every Christian is involved. From that, Joel then goes on to spell out what comes with that. Next is great certainty. Great certainty. Foretastes of judgment guaranteed for all. Now, what does this about verses 30 to 31 have a look at that again i will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth blood and fire and billows of smoke 
The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now we read that and probably our minds go straight away to kind of the end of the world. Sounds like the sky is falling in, everything's collapsing. But just note, this is actually what Joel says will happen before the dreadful day of the Lord. But again, it's helpful to realise that like with the language of dreams and visions, this is the kind of language that both Old Testament and New Testament writers use for catastrophic events that occur not beyond history or at the end of history, but actually within history. So Isaiah the prophet describes what will happen to Babylon. Babylon, the great superpower of the day, and he pronounces judgment on them. And he says, the stars of heaven, this is Isaiah speaking, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. It's just talking about the time that would come when, and it was fulfilled when Cyrus of Persia came and wiped out the Babylonians and the next empire took over. But it's, the, the way it's described is using this sort of extraordinary poetic language that we're not particularly used to. In uh, Matthew chapter 24 in the New Testament, Jesus talks about two great events to come. He talks about the destruction of the temple that would happen, and, and it did happen in AD 70 about four, you know, just under 40 years ahead of him speaking. But he also then talks about the end of the world. He talks about his return. But again, then, he uses the language of the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light to refer not to the end of the world, but to the destruction of the temple. Because it's cataclysmic, it's catastrophic. Can't find any words to describe it. Need to use these extraordinary cataclysmic descriptions to describe this end of an age kind of, of, of event that would give as the next age came. We've seen already in Joel that there is one great final day of the Lord to come at the end of history and we'll see more about that next time. But we've also seen there are other lesser days of the Lord within history when God acts in judgment in some way and even days of locusts which are not judgments on some specific sin, but are signs that there is a greater judgment to come. And that is what's going on here, you see, before the final day comes. And so again, it, you know, it's sometimes thought that the point of these predictions about end times is for us to get our kind of checklists out and try and match world history as it unfolds now to the specific things that the Bible says. You're kind of, oh, you know, here it goes, here it comes, and we tick it off. The thing is, given that this kind of language is applied to multiple events throughout world history, not just things right at the end, Joel seems to be saying, you need to understand, therefore, there are going to be cataclysmic events which give you a foretaste of judgment of that day, of that day of the Lord. They give you a foretaste of that day of the Lord, but they're not yet that day itself. They're warning you that day is coming but they're not yet that day itself. And so that's helpful because it makes us say to ourselves, don't be surprised when hard times come. Times of suffering, times of locusts. Don't be surprised. And expect, too, that there will be multiple occurrences. You know, so I know people have sometimes looked at each other over the last 18 months and said, 
do you think do you think this is it do you think this is it because you know there's so much weird stuff going on in the world with covid stuff that in our lifetimes we haven't quite seen like this it's just extraordinary and there's governments doing crazy things and there's conspiracies and everything else in between maybe this is it Actually, we just need to take a step back at that point, don't we? You know, even in the 20th century alone, there have been countless events which could have been labelled with this kind of language of sun and moon going dark. You know, imagine being on the battlefield of the Somme in World War I. Tens of thousands dying daily, every day, at its peak. Extraordinary carnage, bloodshed would have seemed cataclysmic, apocalyptic. Imagine living through the 1918 flu pandemic before a widespread understanding of hygiene and how viruses spread. Imagine witnessing the rise of Hitler in the 1930s, the, the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. COVID is bad. It's way worse in other parts of the world isn't it we need to keep remembering that but this is what it's like that's the point this is what it's like living in a fallen world don't be surprised before the great day of the lord comes there will be these foretastes that remind us this is not meant to be a utopia you know if we have a perfect life where everything goes perfectly that's weird it's not meant to be like that it won't be like that there is no promise of that there is a promise of a great day of the Lord to come which will sort everything out. So fix your eyes on that and see the meaning of these events that we experience here and now, whether it's COVID or unemployment or bereavement or depression or illness or fuel shortages or whatever it is that kind of is making us panic and go, this is too much. What's going on? Don't understand this. Look to the end. The end will come. It will certainly come. That is what this is saying. The fact that the Holy Spirit has now been given in fulfillment of verses 28 and 29. No, 28 and 29 have happened. The Holy Spirit has been given. It's just one further piece of evidence that what God says is going to happen will happen. Do you see? The train has left the station, as it were. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. The journey has begun, and this train will call at trouble and hardship and suffering and pain and all stations to glory. So great certainty, foretaste of judgment guaranteed for all. They show the end is coming. But then thirdly and finally, great responsibility. Salvation offered to all. Verse 32 then the great day comes, what then? Well, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, in Acts chapter 2, Peter spells out what that means and, and, and who that Lord is. Because we now know who the Lord is on whom we are to call, don't we? We know that his name is Jesus. And so at the end of that speech that we heard in Acts chapter 2, he says this, he says, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on, this promise is for you and for your children 
and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, can you see what Peter is doing here? He's actually preaching Joel chapter 2 and applying it now that Jesus and the Holy Spirit have been given. He's saying this promise is not just for some, it's for all. Anybody who puts their trust in Jesus, your sons and your daughters, men and women, even slaves, as it said in in the book of Joel, anybody who puts their trust in Jesus, anybody at all. And now we start to see why it is so necessary that all Christians should receive the Holy Spirit, why all Christians can and must prophesy in the way that this is talking about, because the message we are given to prophesy, to proclaim, is a message for all people so that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ can be saved. It's not just a message for a few, it's for all. So all need to hear about it. You know, yes, some people have a particular gift of preaching or teaching or evangelism. Some people are particularly suited to doing that in a public, upfront kind of ministry. But the problem is, they don't know your friends and your family and your neighbours and your colleagues. I don't work in your office. I don't know your neighbours and your families, but they still need to hear about Jesus. Joel chapter 2 is telling us the world we live in is a hard place. Suffering is real. Suffering is expected. COVID and its effects are not a surprise. This is what we should expect. Meanwhile, we have a responsibility There's a parallel between the all who prophesy in verses 28 and 29 and the all who call on the name of the Lord in verse 32. In order for all to call on the name of the Lord, they need to hear about him. In the face of those barriers that we all feel to speaking about Jesus, we need to know this is reality. It's serious. It's urgent. Do we believe that? Joel is laying out why we need to believe that. Maybe we need to start at the beginning and realize, actually, I need to take the time to form meaningful relationships with people. I may not have the gift of street evangelism, but I can take the time to try and get to know the people that God has put in my life. So that where it's appropriate, and they might ask me, what have you done on the weekend? And I just get a little chance to explain something of what happened on Sunday when I went to church. They might be going through a hard time, and, and you're just like anybody would do. You're alongside them, and you're talking with them, and then you're able to say, could I, I pray for you? Maybe you can share how God has worked in you through a hard time that you have been through and what it has meant for you personally to have known God because we have the Holy Spirit, do you see? We have the privilege of knowing God and then we can speak for him in those situations. But for many of us, the barrier may just be, I'm I'm just worried I won't know what to say and I'll get it wrong say the wrong thing, I'll make it worse. And again, that is where we just need that confidence that comes from knowing we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And that means that we know God and that means that we can speak for God. Now, it doesn't just mean just, you know, say whatever comes out of your mind. It means get to know him through his word the word that his spirit inspired. Because he has made himself known here. And so the more that we get to know him, 
by his Holy Spirit then working in us so that we can see and understand it, what he's saying, the more we are then equipped to simply speak and to speak about what this has meant for us personally, which is the most powerful thing that we can do as individuals, not just speak generally, but speak, what, what has God done in my life that I can share with my friend? Matthew 12, 34 is a great verse. It's easy to remember. Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, 12, 34. Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4. It's a great verse. It spells this out. It just says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Christians are those whose hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. And sharing our faith is nothing more or less than sharing what God has done for us. If our hearts have been changed, we can tell others. If we're excited about that, we will tell others. We have great privilege because we have the Holy Spirit. We have great certainty and we're not surprised when hard times hit. And so we have great responsibility to share this good news so that all may call on the name of the Lord and be saved. 